I also had like a little group of friends, um, the people I looked up to who, uh, had always talked about doing things with computers. I don't know that they ever described themselves as like quote unquote hackers, but they were, they were people who I, I kind of looked up to as peers. You know, Off Crack also came out in the early 2000s. And so that was kind of another representation of this, this tool that you could download and it would, it would do this really interesting security circumvention for you. Sub Cyberspace. This is Lorenzo Franceschi Bicchierai, and today we have a very special episode of Cyber. Every month I'm going to interview a famous or infamous hacker who tells us about the first time they pwned a computer. Our first guest is the very badass Emily Crows, who used to work at the Pentagon and the NSA. She now works for a company that protects critical infrastructure and promises to safeguard civilization. Welcome my first hack. Thank you, Emily, for being here. Uh, I think it's uh, your first time on the show. Hard not to have been on the show before when it's the first <laughs> one of the show. It's the first for everyone here involved, so that's great. Um, so yeah, tell us a bit about um, what was your first hack? Oh, first hack. Okay. So first hack. Um, so I've been asked a question like this before, um, a few times and the, the, the answer you always expect to have like a really cool answer for this one. Like, Oh, you know, I, uh, got into some super secure database or something. It's not that it wasn't that way for me. I, I don't know how many people it actually is that way for, but mine, my first one was just playing around with back orifice 2k um, and the, the victim was myself. Um, I self-infected with back orifice and, um, uh, it didn't, it took me a while to figure out what had happened. But, uh, when I did, I actually still got a chance to, to learn the software. So it wasn't a total loss, but that's just kind of how you learn, I guess. Yeah. So this was, this must've been late nineties, early two thousands, right? Uh, early, early two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how did you, like, what, what brought you to like, what motivated you to essentially self-hack and learn about that software? Yeah, I was, this was in high school and, um, you know, you go into high school and you're trying to figure out who you are and, um, what kinds of groups you want to hang around with. My dad was in computers, so I had some kind of passing interest, I guess, in computer technology, but, I didn't know what I was doing with it. Um, all I knew was kind of what he told me. And this was coming from a time when like pop up, uh, ads were a really big thing and everyone was trying to get around them. And, um, there, there were all kinds of little things that would get on your computer just from standard browsing. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was kind of like my intro to the, the more technical side of how computers are supposed to operate was just looking through the, the registry and figuring out what, um, if there was like a piece of malware or something that would change a registry key that, that kind of helped me, uh, understand what was going on in the computer at the time. Um, but I also had like a little group of friends, um, the people I looked up to who, uh, had always talked about doing things with computers. And, um, I don't know that they ever described themselves as like quote unquote hackers, but they were, there were people who I, I kind of 
looked up to his peers and um, although we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking to each other about things like computer security, we still got an opportunity to kind of exchange a few ideas that would give us at least some encouragement to continue doing what we were doing, although it was not impressive stuff at the time Mm -hmm. or now. It was it was just a very like um, very early attempt to try to understand what was what security was all about back when I was probably like a sophomore mm-hmm. or a junior in high school. Yeah, and obviously these were the times when um, you know I guess uh, even the term hacker wasn't as loaded as it is now. Um, there weren't like uh, cybersecurity stories splashed on the headlines of the New York Times every other day. Um, right. And as you as you hinted, like these were times when just browsing the internet was relatively dangerous. I mean, most of the time it was just, you know, malvertising, I guess we would call it right now, although probably at the time yeah. it wasn't even a term. Uh, but you could genuinely get hacked and get infected by malware just going to the wrong website. Um, well, yeah. And, and this was also, don't forget that this is like, this is pre-router days in a lot of cases. We were using, uh, we had 56K in my family for probably, well, probably less time than most people, but we were still using dial-up into the early 2000s. And so everything was, you, you had direct IP connections to everybody who you were communicating with. So like, it was even more dangerous back then could go wrong? without having network address translation <laughs> to kind of at least give you some some level of protection. Yeah, let's just talk to each other's IP address directly, right? You know, what's... Uh, what, what's That's fine, uh, nothing what, wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. what could go wrong? Um, and um, yeah, so so you had like a friend of... Um, like a group of friends. Uh, you mentioned that you didn't... You don't know if you were... They were even calling themselves um, hackers... I'm curious, like, is that a thing that at the time, like, were people, you know, in uh, BBSs or IRCs uh, calling themselves hackers or was it just more, you know, like right now on Twitter, you see a lot of people saying, oh, I'm a hacker, I'm part of Anonymous, whatever. How was how was it back then? Well, yeah, I think it was always kind of that way. Yeah, there was, um, at least among my friends, there was certainly a, a certain amount of like, there, there was, there was nobody to tell you that you were or weren't one. So if you wanted to give yourself that title, of course, you could, you could call yourself whatever you wanted to. So there was no, there was no restriction or regulation on who could call themselves what. Um, so we just kind of, if, if you were dabbling amongst the people who I was talking to at the time, it, it was fine to call yourself whatever you wanted to. I think there was, eventually there became kind of like a, um, there became kind of a stigma about calling yourself a hacker mm-hmm. um, just because it was it kind of the term wore out its usefulness, I think, at a certain point. So culturally, it kind of like dipped. Um, and uh, and I think it kind of it, I think it kind of stayed down. I don't think that people still really describe themselves in that way. At least most of the legitimate people who I interact with, I don't think they would call themselves really like hackers uh, as an identity anymore, um, maybe ironically. But yeah, I certainly wouldn't put that on my business card. Yeah, I feel like for some people, it's a, it's a thing of the past. It's something that they used to be, they used to call themselves. And it's some people like maybe see it as like a youthful thing. Other, others don't like it anymore because it's gotten some negative uh, connotations. But yeah, it's not as simple. To, it's not as common to see anymore. So, did did you have a did you have a hacker name at the time? Uh yeah, I did. I did. I I don't want to say it. No self doxing. 
it's it's not so much about the doxing. It's just a really awful. It's just not a good name. <laughs> so hasn't aged well. That's fair. We we kind of tend to. It's not. It wasn't like. Uh, it, it, it's not spicy or anything. It's just not a well chosen. Mm-hmm. It's stupid, like a childhood thing. Um, I think. A, a, ha- a hacker handle or like a name that you come up with for yourself um, it tends to be like wearing a coat, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's like something that you put on and it, it represents a time and a place. But eventually you've worn the coat long enough and it just kind of like maybe it gets some holes in it or um, you just get it's not part of your style anymore. So like you just take it off and you mm-hmm. throw it away. It's kind of the same thing with like a name. Not a lot of people um kind of keep the name that the original name that they gave themselves. Some people come up with permutations of it, but it's, yeah, I, when I, when I take off a name or an alias, that's gone forever, <laughs> or at least I try to make it gone forever. That's good OPSEC. I think the, the Grok would say, so good job. Yeah, I, I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> so how the, so to go back to Becca Orifice, like how did you, I know that at the time it was kind of a, a big thing. Like it was a big story, I think, especially in DEFCON circles and yeah. um, the CDC, the cult of the dead cow made a big deal out of it. And part of the whole story about the back orifice was how much of a big deal they made out of it. You know, they be, made a big announcement. Uh, it was all about denouncing Windows' uh, lack of security. So how right. did you come across it and why did you think it was a good idea to use that software on yourself? So I didn't intend to use it on myself, Lorenzo. So I should point out this was an accidental self-infection, is it the technical term? Um, <laughs> so a self-pone, I think. This is actually, yeah, you'd be surprised how often this happens. It's it's not a thing that people will talk about, certainly, but you know, even even professional developers these days, you just run the wrong thing in the wrong place, and and oops. Oopsie doopsie. Um, so it's it's not necessarily like you mean for this to happen. It just does. Um, but so how, how did I come into familiar, familiarity with back orifice? I, I think it was probably somebody among that group of friends who recommended it or was talking about it. I don't remember exactly like what year that was exactly. It might have mm-hmm. been 2001 or 2002 that I, I got kind of took interest in it. But, uh, so it wasn't like immediate, I wasn't, I wasn't super tuned into what was happening at DEF CON or anything like that. It just kind of like made its way. The news made its way to me. And so who were you trying to hack? Was there a target? Was there a plan or is it something like you were bored one night and you were just like, let's try out this? Yeah, no, no plan. Um, no, no, never any plans. Just trying to learn about it. Yeah, this this time was kind of the early representational time when people were making tools and making them publicly available mm-hmm. that would do offensive things. Like people always shared techniques before connect to this uh, phone number for access to a, a protected zone or something like that, or um, something along those lines. The, you know, off crack also came out in the early 2000s, and so that was kind of another representation of this this tool that you could download and it would it would do this really interesting security circumvention for you and so having access to that now it's all over the place you know that we've evolved from having just a few really good tools to having an entire website like github that's that's out there for tools that do all kinds of different things and some tools that do the same kinds of things and some do them better than others and others don't do them well at all um, but there's 
this was a time when you didn't have a, a broad spectrum of tools that you could reach into and do these like security type of activities, uh, offensive security activities. It just wasn't it wasn't wasn't developed out that way. Yeah, this was uh, just to put the listener back into that era. Like this was not a time where companies would share uh, open source security tools on their GitHub right. for marketing reasons. I mean, these are really the early days of uh, infosec and uh, and hacking. And and so I'm curious actually, like how easy was back orifice to use? Because um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't paying attention back then. And as you said, like things were much uh, much more complicated in many ways. So like. How how did you go about actually using it? So that that was like one of those tools where you had the intention, you would put it on your computer, double click it, and it did what it was supposed to do. Hmm. So the delivery of the tool was really, um, I think, a little bit more difficult. At least this is kind of my recollection of it right after after what's it been, tw- uh, 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> so like you would have had to have physical access or I would have had to have somebody like me would have had to have physical access to a machine to run this in any kind of offensive, like legitimately offensive way. I probably could have run it on one of my family computers and played around with it. In fact, I think I did at one point um, just kind of put this on a different family computer just to mess with my dad or my sister or something. So to the extent that it was like a targeted activity or something that you could easily run was just, that was the limitation for me as somebody who was, very early in my development of these types of skills. And and what did you learn from, uh, you know, both from uh, your first uh, self pwn so to speak, to, to, you know, playing around with your family computers? One of the things I learned from that, I think probably the biggest lesson that stuck with me is that everybody participates in security to some extent, even if you have just a little bit of interest and in maybe even just a tiny bit of skill. And I'm not even saying that what I have was skill. I have the ability to double click a file and run it, right? So I doubt like download the right thing and then double click it and run it. So it it really brought the the technical the technique concepts down to a level where you could just run something and interfere with it. That that was um that gave me an immense amount of uh encouragement and motivation to learn the more complex things later on that I just didn't have at the time. And so by no means was I ever at this point, um, uh, like a, a highly skilled, highly technical individual. I, I didn't have the ability when I was a teenager to like rip through, uh, the, the really nitty gritty parts of a registry. Like I could certainly search through a registry and figure out what kinds of keys were there, but I didn't necessarily know what they all did. And so the, the whole, um, kinesthetic, the like, the the touching part of computer security was something that I had to I had to develop after I had already started with a tool like Back Orifice. So would you say that like that was um, like a very important part of your uh, development as a hacker? Oh yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I think it's interesting that it was uh, Back Orifice in particular because. Um, I think a lot of people these days don't realize how important that tool was in the history of uh, of hacking. Um, I, I read the book from Joseph Mann uh, this year um, about the cult of the dead cow, and there's obviously back orifice and back orifice. What was it, 2K, the second version? Yeah, uh, that was the one I was using, yeah. Yeah, th- those were like huge for uh, for hacking culture. And, um, and not just hacking culture, like um, I heard rumors that like some of the... Uh, 
you know, like for example, the hacking team's first um, uh, product was heavily based on back orifice. It was basically a yeah. copy paste and then uh, some some added, um, you know, customizations or whatever their customers needed. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what's interesting. I think about a lot of the people from my generation of uh, hackers. I'm just saying this as a, for lack of a better term, um, we we had um. There's always been a culture in the hacking community of sharing information, mm-hmm. and so like right around the time that I was starting to experiment with things and computers, we went from sharing just raw information to sharing uh, like tools and. Uh, programs. And this, this to me was kind of like a very notional jump um, in the history of computer security, going from just like having a, a very dry sense of um, this is how this system works. And if you do something in this way, then you'll be able to break the security of the system. There's still a lot of that. In fact, I would say that the most technical components of, of at least offensive security these days have that component in them, that ability to like tear apart a specific system component and figure out which part does what and what is exploitable. That's that's what gets people past, you know, the OSCP or one of these certification programs that are very popular right now. Um, so it's it's much less tool based, um, mm. and and I think eventually we kind of culturally we started to tune out people who got to the point of using tools and stopped, right? We call those pe- types of people script kitties. Mm-hmm. Like they, they're able to pick up a tool and use somebody else's tool, but they could never develop their own or um, they don't, they're, they're maybe still in that learning phase. Um, there's, it's kind of a loaded term, but you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And and, the, and the flip side of that is uh, again, this uh, sharing culture that back then, was some, somewhat different to now. Um, part of the point that the CDC wanted to put across, I guess, was you too can hack Windows because it's this easy, you know, right? Like you can just use right. this and Microsoft is not giving a damn. So do you think that that was really, like, were you a little scared at how easy it was to hack uh, with that tool and has, has it changed really? I think to some extent back then, I didn't really, you don't always realize that what you're looking at is as bad as it is, especially when you don't have like the the high level view of what's good and what's bad. And in terms of security, it doesn't really, it, for me, it didn't, it didn't immediately set off this like, oh my God, I can't believe that they would, why would you do security like this? It certainly seemed easy to, to, you know, run a tool like back orifice, um, but there, there were, there was always something that would, in my experience, would make it slightly more complicated to just use it liberally, right? So, like in the case of back orifice, one of the difficulties I always had was trying to figure out just notionally how I would run this thing on a computer that I didn't own. And then you get to a certain point. At least I was a good kid, right? I was, I was such a good kid um, that I didn't want to get in any kind of trouble or anything like that. So I never, I never got to the point of like using any of the the ideas that I had to run this on someone else's computer who I didn't have permission. But you have to go through the the motions of figuring that out. It's not just um you can come up with the ideas, but proving them out is is always the challenge in in hacker parlance. We have a proof of concept is the thing that everybody wants to get to. But when you're when you have no education and you are trying to learn things from the ground up, there is a certain amount of like 
experimentation that you have to be willing to go to in order to learn that next thing. And sometimes there's risk associated with that. And in my case, too, I just didn't it was hardware limitations as well. I just didn't have enough computers, right, to, to like play around with all the different things that I'd really like to have. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What was the next step then? How did you go from there, you know, to play around with this software to getting on your way to become a professional like you are today? So it took a lot of time and it was very incremental. It was so incremental. It's hard to tell you like exactly where I went after that. Right. So like, I think I, I, I started um, getting into IRC and um, I was looking at uh, different network uh, networking concepts so I was really learning the the very basic stuff back then that I would use later on. So like being able to run a trace route. And uh, one thing I remember was like this guide on how to figure out where your connection was being routed through. So uh, you would like run a trace route and see which nodes your your connection would hop through as you went to X site. And so that was like probably one of the things I did after learning about back orifice and running back orifice is just kind of figuring out how how networking worked because if you wanted to use this somewhere else or if you wanted to learn more about somebody who you were chatting with maybe you would have to learn some amount of networking to get there do you think that that that's been lost a little bit like uh sometimes i see people saying that um the best way to get into infosec is to just learn the basics of networking and learn the basics of computer science Certainly, that's still a thing that you, I think, is one of the barriers to entry to being a legitimate computer security professional is learning how the inner workings of, of something like networking works. It's it's really difficult in this day and age to be good at that without to be good at computer security without understanding how packets go from pl- from point A to point B. So, in terms of learning that that type of information, I don't think that that's been lost. There is a certain uh, ethos, I think in the hacker community that is maybe not lost, but has possibly been diluted from when I was, you know, going through my discovery phase. Um, and I make it sound so sorted discovery phase, that period of time where you are poking and prodding and doing things based on just pure curiosity and not knowing anything and maybe having like a very limited technical manual and technical knowledge for this thing you want to learn about, I still think I think there are people who still get into it through that, but there's definitely more formalization now with education. And I think that's a great thing. But the the trade off there is that there's less time focused on learning something that has no documentation or 
yeah, it's it's hard to describe, I guess. It's it's more of a it's more of a feels versus a feels of a reels thing is what I'm trying to describe mm. here. And and I could be wrong about this, but it it's it, and it's not like I'm I'm not pining for a time where people have less access to information. But there is there is a certain like hard scrabble nature, I think, that comes from not having the information and learning it from the ground up that may be uh, harder to attain when you have all the information in front of you. And it's just a matter of finding it. Yeah, maybe it's um, it's something that's hard to quantify, like it, it limits creativity in some ways or it can, I guess, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily. But a lot of hacking, as you said, is just, you know, pressing buttons and see what happens yeah. and uh, um, I don't remember who it was I think it was Patrick Wardle actually one time told me that you know he's, he he was talking about him um, disassembling or uh, reverse engineering a malware and he said you know I don't have I'm not really a reverse engineer I'm not trained as a reverse engineer so I just ran this malware on a VM and looked at yeah. what it was doing um, yeah yeah and I've met I've met Patrick a couple times he's a great guy um the thing that struck me when I first started talking to him, when I first met him, I think at ShmooCon maybe two or three years ago, was exactly what you're describing. Like this, this guy is just a really curious nerd, <laughs> and and it, he's definitely still got that very. You can tell this about some people. He's he's still got that childlike wonder about things, and it's very easy to see how he could just get lost in some obscure thing, you know, in, in a, a weird niche component of a Mac or something like that, you know, but that's why he's good at what he does, in my opinion. So how did you go from, you know, from this to like working to the government and now being in the private sector? Like, uh, is there a lesson there for, for the youth, you know, for, for young hackers getting into the industry? What would you tell them? Well, I went the lace curtain, uh, college bound version of, uh, getting an education. And, you know, I, I, when I went to, to college, my initial interest was in doing history. So I was initially going to be a history teacher. And then I realized, you know, I kind of would rather make history or be a part of making history rather than just talking about it all the time. I still definitely like doing that. I spend, uh, some of my, my side time, my personal time doing this kind of research, and it's definitely still interesting as a hobby. But when I was in college, there was there was a moment where I had to make a real tough decision about whether to change my major. And that's kind of what I decided to change and do what I'm doing now. So when I was at Eastern Michigan University, we had a program that had just started up when I was there for information assurance. It was one of the few college programs for information assurance at the time. The I, I don't know if they still do it, but the NSA had this thing that they called the uh, Center for Academic Excellence or something like that. So Eastern was one of these places. And um, so I, I think NSA funded a certain amount of programs, a certain amount of classes or some such thing at my university. And that's I, I took some of those classes and that's kind of how I got into working for NSA after after I was done with college. I feel like that's what you want, right? If you're like if you're a country that wants a, a mature like cybersecurity program and you want to know how to use um these tools uh, in geopolitics and uh etc like you want that kind of uh, outreach to young people, right? Looking back, do you think that there was a 
a good thing for your career? And do you think that uh, the NSA should be doing something like that? Because I know that it's it can be controversial for some people. That Yeah, it's definitely something that I recognize as being controversial now. Um, I, I still think it was good for my career. Um, it definitely gave me an opportunity to kind of get into a job that was interesting to me and learn more about what I was interested in. Like, not everybody who comes out of college has a full depth of information, unfortunately, um, in what they're studying. So when you get to the job, the workplace, sometimes it's you still have a bit of a buffer period of time where you need to learn some more about what you're doing. And to do that in a space that allows for that is uh, is really important. It was important, important for me as a college graduate to have that place where I could understand a little bit more about it without um, um, without getting myself into too much uh, like work related trouble as in like, you know, show exactly how little I knew mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time. Um, and you might think of like a, an agency in the government as being really not a great place to learn, but it was for me. So uh, that was my experience was more in the way of being able to and having access to more education and uh, learning opportunities. And so all of that was great for, for me. And this was like, a, if I'm not, if I'm not getting the time wrong, like this is a few years after 9-11. Did that play into your wanting to be part of history rather than, you know, witnessing it? I don't, I don't think so. Hmm. Um, there, there may have been a certain amount of, like nationalist interest that I had at the time for doing, you know, giving back to my country or some idealistic thing. But I, I definitely, that changes over time. Uh, you know, I definitely still like being an American citizen. It just didn't, it didn't push me into that place. Having a national identity wasn't really the the main driving force for getting me into government. It was more, I, I had this really interesting opportunity that I felt like I needed to pursue. So, uh, and, and it's, it was all secret and everything was, mm. you know, it's, it's hard to describe that exciting. feeling of like, it's, it was just pure excitement. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And I think it's interesting that for a lot of, uh, a lot of former NSA or, you know, just government people, uh, after the Snowden revelations have, um, you know, are relatively shy, um, to talk about it, whereas in countries like Israel, you know, saying that you're from, you need A200 is is almost like a requirement, right? Yeah. Like you don't get a cybersecurity job in Israel unless you, at least it seems so, right? From from the outside, like I can't tell you right. how many how many emails I have uh, from PR saying, hey, do you want to talk to this person? He's a former A200 uh, grad. Uh, whereas in the U.S., it's that's not um, it's not as common, and I feel like as a you know as a journalist, I feel like that's kind of a it may be unfair. Um, like I, I think it's been you know five six years or oh, maybe seven years now from the Snowden revelations, and I think that um, you know I think we we should come to a time where like we don't look at former um, government employees uh, under a negative light just because of the revelations that Snowden um, put put out. Yeah, you know, I I understand the skepticism. There's a certain amount of, like, whenever you have secrets or when secrets are involved, it's very difficult to be straight up with people about things. And so uh, I understand the the public's sentiment about people who used to work for the government. You know, as a, a private citizen now, 
Um, I definitely have my my feelings about how the government conducts business, but I, I've found different ways to, um, you know, like I, I write my representatives a lot, hmm. <laughs> like a lot. That's because that's I'm still working within a system that I, you know, inherently I still believe in uh, to to enact change. And I think that was kind of the difference between people like me who work for the government and were faithful to the promises that we made and people who weren't, um, is that the belief in that system. And that that is the thing, I think, that disconnects a lot of people in the public from the way that government just does business in general. And uh, and yeah, it's it's something that you, if you haven't been on both sides of that coin, it's difficult to understand why things work the way that they do. And but I definitely think there's there's room to improve for our, for the government in particular. Yeah, and I guess what I was trying to say it's also that like I don't know if there's a like for for a young like a college grad who's interested in infosec. I don't know if there's a many places that give you more chance to grow and learn um, as a, a government agency. Um, I mean, sure, you could have maybe gone to a Silicon Valley startup, and there is a different kind of learning there. But it's just a it's just a different mentality, different incentives, different pace. Um, yeah, I mean, there is a reason why a lot of people t- take that road. Yeah, it make, and it makes sense. It, it worked for me. It doesn't, it's not a thing that's going to work for everyone, but it certainly worked for me. And, and yeah, just, and, uh, well, and now you uh, got us to close the circle. Now you, you do, you have left the government and you are in the private sector. How's that transition been? And can you tell us a little bit about what you do now? Yeah. So when I left government, I went to work for, um, Keith Alexander's company. So that was where I was in 2017 when I got out of the government. So instead of, you know, working for uh, General Alexander as a member of the National Security Agency, who I, you know, I worked under him when I was at NSA, I was working for him uh, in his in his own company. And and that was also just a, it was a really for me, culturally, it was a very soft landing to be around a lot of the same people who I had worked around when I was working in government was a great experience. Um, and to also kind of like to continue doing work that I felt was important was also kind of just a really big, that was a really big part of why I chose to go where I did after my government experience. So I spent a couple of years there and then I, I moved over to where I'm at now, which is uh, a company called Dragos and we do, um, uh, industrial security. So we're, we're protecting, uh, networks that, service uh, factories that protect the electrical grid, water, um, just all kinds of different industrial purposes. Critical infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What would you have said if someone would have come to you like in the back to the future and said, you know, in in 20 years, you're going to be defending like nuclear power plants and whatever? Yeah, I probably would have said like, uh, well, she's going to have to improve her math skills. (laughs) I was never a particularly good math student. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of like another another thing when I was younger was this idea that I was, well, I was never going to make it anywhere because my my skills in my my academic skills just weren't that. I was always like a very average student. I felt like um, I'm, I'm self-taught in almost everything that I know. So uh, if I'm not learning it myself, if I'm getting this information from a class, like it's... Uh, it's not quite the same experience for me. Hmm. So I definitely would have, I would have been um, 
surprised to know that I was doing anything that was that was as fulfilling as my work is right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I guess, do you still use back office once in a while just to for the old feels or? been a long time. It's been a real long time, but I... I'm, I don't know if it still gets updates, right? I, I don't think that it's supported anymore. But, you know, the cool thing now is that I'm in contact with a lot of the people who were doing this kind of development back then. So there's a certain amount of, like, meeting your heroes uh, arc to my story and my journey through security that is, that's been really fun for me. So, like... Um, One of the tools that I always used to use when I was younger was was off crack because and it wasn't again, it was kind of like I would just forget a password or get frustrated with my computer. And so I would just have off crack on hand or when I was working in the help desk at Eastern Michigan University, it was the same deal. Like we would get a computer in that we would have to reimage, but we couldn't do it without having um without having off crack. So we would use this tool. And then a couple of years ago, I'm I'm talking to Mudge now, and Mudge is like a personal role model of mine. So there's once you get into the the circle of security, legitimate security people, there are so many interesting people doing such interesting work in this in this industry that I I can't imagine really doing a whole lot else. You always get that urge to like find some other thing, but um this is what I've been doing for for 20 over 20 years. So it's it's tough to It's tough to imagine doing something else. So did you end up getting better at math? No. Nope. See, that's the I'm lesson here. I'm still terrible at math. See, you don't need math to be a good hacker then. <laughs> well, I, it helps. It certainly helps. There have been times where I wish I was a better math student. Well, it's never too late. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Emily. This was very fun. Uh, always great catching up with you. Oh, likewise. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.